once again to Profiles on Nantucket Community Television and Channel 18. I'm Charlie Walters. Joining me today via Zoom from Phippsburg, Maine is Susan Beagle. For 20 years, she lived year round on Nantucket with her late husband, Wes Tiffney, who was the founding director of the UMass Nantucket Field Station. During her time on Island, Susan worked at Mitchell's Book Corner, served on the boards of the Nantucket Athenaeum and the Mariah Mitchell Association, and taught in the Nantucket semester of UMass Boston's American Civilization Program. She is an expert on Nantucket's literary connections and co-directed Iowan conferences on Herman Melville, Edgar Allan Poe, and John Steinbeck for their National Author Societies. Susan has a PhD in English from Yale University and had a long career as editor of the Hemingway Review, a peer-reviewed scholarly journal on the author's life and work and a publication of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation. She has also taught in the Maritime Studies Program of Williams College at Mystic Seaport in Connecticut. Susan has published four books, including the Nantucket Reader, and written more than 50 scholarly articles on various aspects of American literature and history. Her most recent accomplishment was being an advisor to the recent Ken Burns PBS documentary on Hemingway, and she's here today to talk about that experience and also the importance of Hemingway's childhood visit to Nantucket. Susan, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Charlie. It's, it's good to be here. Uh, before we get into Hemingway on Nantucket, uh, why don't we start with uh, how you first got interested in Hemingway and when that was? Well, I think like pretty much everyone in the in the U.S., you know, I grew up reading Hemingway in school. Uh, I think I read Old Man in the Sea and Farewell to Arms for the first time in high school and uh, Sun Also Rises in college. But I got interested professionally in graduate school because when you um, are ready to write a doctoral dissertation, you, it's pretty a, much a momentous decision to choose who you're going to write about because that person, that specialty is going to follow you for the rest of your career. And um, I had done Hemingway as a unit in my oral exams. And I just didn't really know what I was doing. I thought about doing a dissertation on Herman Melville, but I didn't know I was coming to live on Nantucket. <laughs> um, and then um, one day I was reading, we, we get a professional journal um, from the Modern Language Association. And in the back, this is before the internet, it had professional notes and comments and it had a little advertisement for a conference at the Kennedy Library in Boston. And the Kennedy Library had just received um, the papers of Ernest Hemingway from his estate. And they had just finished cataloging them and opening them. And what you really want for a dissertation is material that no one else has ever seen, because whatever you do needs to be original to be publishable. And I thought, you know what, I will just drive up there to that conference. And when I got up there, um, the president of the Hemingway Society introduced me to the curator of the Hemingway collection and she took me upstairs. They'd never had a PhD student come to work on the Hemingway papers before. And the only way I can describe it is that it was like the opening of King Tut's tomb. There were thousands of pages of unpublished Hemingway up there. The manuscripts to everything he ever wrote and published, you could pick up the typescript of Old Man in the Sea if you wanted to, thousands of letters, and all of the many, many books that have been published um, since his death. So things that hadn't been published yet, like um, The Garden of Eden or, or The Dangerous Summer. Um, 
thousands, literally thousands of photographs. I'm not making up the thousands. It was just amazing. So I naturally decided on the spot that I was going to do my doctoral dissertation on Hemingway and use those manuscripts. And manuscript work is really, really fun because you get to see how a work is created from scratch and uh, connect it with the author's life and all the events that are going on around that. Um, it involves reading other people's mail, <laughs> which is <laughs> a lot of fun. So um, I was just incredibly lucky to have had that resource open when I was looking for um, a dissertation topic. And the whole you know, rest of my career has been involved around the continuous opening and publication and all of the very rich things that have been been done with this stuff. I'm assuming that there are any number of places where his papers could have ended up. How do they end up where they did end up? Well, um, when Hemingway died in 1961, um, all of his papers were still at his home in Cuba. And he could not go back because the Cuban Revolution had taken place. Uh, Castro had come into power. Um, a lot of his really valuable manuscripts were in a bank in Havana um, in a safe deposit box and the banks had been nationalized. Um, and everything in his home was there exactly the way he had left it when he walked out the door. His books were on the shelf, his whiskey bottles on the table by his chair, um, his slippers, you know, in, in the bedroom, everything. So um, fortunately, and really kind of unbelievably when you think about the Bay of Pigs, the Hemingway's widow, Mary, um, was able to talk to Jackie Kennedy, who she had met at a banquet the Kennedys gave for the winners of Nobel Prizes um, when they got into the White House. Ernest had already passed away, but Mary was invited. And uh, Jackie Kennedy, who is a great patron of the arts, asked Mary if she would consider donating her husband's papers to the Kennedy Library. Um, and what, what happened was, so the, then the Kennedy administration made a deal um, with Castro that it would, you know, they would not mind if Ernest was, if Mary was allowed back. And um, she basically went in and took Hemingway's paintings and most of his manuscripts from the house, um, some other valuable things, and then donated the house and Hemingway's boat Pilar to the people of Cuba. Um, so made this gift in exchange for being allowed to get these things out. And um, it's kind of a story I think Nantucketers would appreciate because she flew out of, of Castro's Cuba that was theoretically closed to U.S. citizens with everything she could carry on a little tiny, you know, prop plane, right? We know that well, trying to get the luggage on the, on the prop plane. And then this is really scary. She put, she put, um, she had all of his manuscripts in uh, paper shopping bags. That's how they went on the plane. And then the paintings and all of the valuables on, from the house, she put on a shrimp boat. And she paid the captain of the shrimp boat to bring them to Key West to pick up. <laughs> so that's how they got in the Kennedy Library, weirdly enough. But you can imagine getting all that stuff out of, of Cuba after the revolution, you know, in paper bags on a prop plane and on a shrimp boat. That's that's how they came out. <laughs> well, any number of things could have gone wrong, but obviously- Yeah, this. what could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> and, well, and Castro I, I, agreed to overlook it. It was one of the last American flag vessels out of 
Havana Harbor. Well, I was just going to say this had to have happened prior to the Bay of Pigs. The, pardon me? This had to have happened prior to the Bay of no, Pigs. No, no, it happened no, after really? the Bay of Pigs. Yes. What? He, now, how? That's amazing. It, it is amazing, but apparently you a, a nation can perpetrate something like the Bay of Pigs and still be talking behind the scenes. And uh, there were some people pretty high up in the Kennedy administration who made it happen that the U.S. would look the other way, Cuba would look the other way. So everybody looked the other way. And, and Cuba got the home, which is one of the most visited cultural sites in Cuba, and the boat. And um, the, the United States got the papers, um, which we have since, in, in just the past decade or so, shared. Um, Jenny Phillips, um, a, another much-loved Nantucket summer person who is Maxwell Perkins's granddaughter and sadly is no longer with us, but Jenny actually created a, a foundation um, that's called the Finca Fajia Foundation so that the U.S. and Cuba could share the papers that they had um, and the U.S. could help with restorations to the home in Cuba and restorations to the boat. So she actually forged this special connection between um, the United States and Cuba with regard to sharing our Hemingway heritage. Now he still had a house in, was it Ketchum, Idaho, where he, where he died? Yeah, he had been going to Ketchum for many years. Um, the Hemingways liked to, <laughs> they liked to get out of Cuba in hurricane season. Um, and so he would go up there to uh, do duck hunting and fishing in the fall. And a lot of times they would stay through the Christmas holidays, which are very, you know, Ritzy and Sun Valley with people like Gary Cooper and um, other Hollywood stars around. Um, and when the revolution occurred in Cuba, they just bought the house they were renting so that they had a place where they could stay. But um, it, it wasn't obviously it wasn't a happy time um, for Ernest and and it would eventually end in uh, in suicide. And I think the, the loss of his home um, in Cuba had something to do with that. But yeah, they, they did have the home in, in Idaho at the time. It just wasn't really he, a home. <laughs> and yet he didn't have anything moved from Cuba to Idaho. No, they left thinking they were going to be able to come back. Um, and things happened, you know, after they left. Um, things had been getting very, very tense um, in the village where they were. I'm trying to remember the exact date when they came out. I think it may have been late in uh, 1959 or early 1960. I mean, there was literally, there was a civil war going on and troops had come onto the property in Cuba. Um, they shot Hemingway's dog. Um, he could easily have been in trouble with, you know, the sort of right-wing people. He, he was more of a leftist himself, but um, because of all the guns that he owned, um, they, had, they had trouble getting some of the guns off to go hunting. They were terrified they were going to get stopped with them. Um, it just was very, very tense. And they started to realize that maybe they did need to have a place to stay, but they thought they would be able to go back. They, what actually happened was they did not count on the Bay of Pigs, and that's what made it impossible for Americans to go back. Um, once C Castro came to power, that wasn't really a problem for someone like Hemingway. But after the Bay of Pigs, with the U.S. and the United States figuratively at war, it it, uh, it was a big problem. And Hemingway at that period was struggling um, with depression. 
but he was struggling with it, trying to get well and all of that. And the actual date of his first suicide attempt, which was not successful, but his first suicide attempt, what happened on the, the day that Kennedy announced to the American people that the Bay of Pigs had taken place. So when he heard that on the radio, that's the moment at which he was, you know, done, like trying to get better um, and, and really felt like he wanted to go. And he never stopped trying until he, until he got it done um, in July of, of 1961. So that was a devastating event for them. Um, and it, it really was only because of the, the Kennedy administration and, and really because of Jackie. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a tale of, of two women and, and Jackie you know, stuck, stuck to her guns after her own husband was killed um, and, and made it happen. So that's, that's, that's what was at the Kennedy Library when I got up there, right? Nobody had really had a chance, much of a chance to look at before where all these papers and wonderful things from, from a locked vault in Havana. <laughs> How long had they been at the library when you got there? It was about, I don't know, 1980, 81 that, the, that they were really open to the public at the, at the JFK and the Hemingway Room was opened. I guess it's in Dorchester, the Dorchester area. It's in, it's in Dorchester. Um, it's on Columbia Point. Yeah. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous building um, designed by the architect I.M. Pei. Yes. Overlooking the sea. And all of the workrooms, all of the research rooms have pretty much floor to ceiling um, glass windows overlooking overlooking the sea. So it's, it's just a beautiful place to work. And... Back in the day, we could actually work in the Hemingway room and there were, you know, Andre Masson paintings and a lion skin rug and Hemingway's trunk with all his stickers from Paris on it. Um, so, yeah, that that's what happens when you read ads in the backs of professional magazines. <laughs> <laughs> Going to that conference was sort of a serendipitous um, decision on, on my part because I wanted to go for a ride on a on a fall weekend in New England. And it was a, one, of, one of those threshold moments. <laughs> well, that library is open to the public, but I assume you need special permission to see the Hemingway papers. You can't just walk in and look at them. It's, it's probably adv adv advisable to let people know that you are coming, but um, when the library is open, there is a research room and a desk and you can go and sign in. You, you, know, you don't have to have, be credentialed to look. You just, you know, um, good idea to make an appointment because sometimes the, the research rooms are, are full. And of course, the library has been closed for two years now because of the, the pandemic. And it's tough with the Hemingway papers because of copyright restrictions that haven't been digitized. So um, <laughs> well, when it is open again, it's very easy to get to. In fact, many Nantucketers have driven more times than they can remember on Route three going up to Boston. And if you know where to look, you can see that building uh, next to UMass and next to the Mass State Archives for that matter. So it's yeah, it, not difficult to access. It's easy to get to. And that was really convenient for me when I was living on Nantucket um, to get up there, get up there to work. And it's also, um, it's not just, you know, collections there, all of Kennedy's things are there too as well, obviously the papers from his administration, but um, it's, it's a museum um, and a wonderful museum about, about the Kennedy years. So um, anybody can just walk right through the door and, 
and visit that when, when the museum is open. And hopefully it will be reopening soon. Um, I've heard by the end of March, but you know, in the pandemic, I, I will say, <laughs> I'm not count, I don't count on anything until, you know, 48 hours before it's supposed to happen. <laughs> so, I think you're wise. We'll see. Uh, in my introduction, I mentioned the Hemingway Review. Uh, before we get to Ken Burns, let's talk a bit about the review. Well, um, the review is the is a scholarly journal. It it belongs to um, the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society, which is a national author society. Um, I was the second editor, and I'm now retired. And there's uh, a new editor who's been at it for a couple of years now. I think we're approaching our 35th or 36th year, um, and it's a journal that travels all around the world to scholars who work on Hemingway, who is one of the top 10 most translated authors in American literature worldwide. And, and that includes popular authors too. Um, and even Walt Disney is considered an author. So to get in that top 10 is, uh, is pretty good. Um, and uh, it, so it's all researched scholarship, uh, peer reviewed scholarship, um, and, and if you if you do this for 22 years, you edit a single subject journal, you really get to know everybody working in the field and um, in a way that you don't if you're doing research yourself. You know, sometimes people are like, where's the big book on Hemingway? And it's like, well, how about, you know, 44 issues of a scholarly journal? <laughs> You know, it just gives you a it gives you a big picture of what's going on in, in Hemingway studies. And I most, you know, if you're not a scholar, you probably a working, you know, professional academic, you don't understand what journals are, are all about. People have you've heard publish or perish and people have to do that in order to be promoted and get a professorship, um, get hired. It's 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 really a an important thing to do in terms of, of research. And, and I just mentioned it because sometimes people have been surprised about the Ken Burns series. Like, what do you do that would make somebody want to talk to you about Hemingway? That's really it, but it wouldn't, you wouldn't know that if you weren't an academic, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, so it, it's been fun and been a wonderful uh, opportunity to, you know, meet and get to know all kinds of scholars and their work and um, the Hemingway Society, which owns it, um, has conferences every two years. And as you may know, Hemingway was quite the traveler. So it's been an opportunity for me to travel, you know, uh, to Cuba and Key West and Ketchum Sun Valley and Paris and, Italy and <laughs> Spain and go to the bullfights. And I was used to say, you know, at least once a year, I give thanks that I did not decide to do my dissertation on Emily Dickinson. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I choose my day. I think the last time I chose my day, I was, I was sitting at a table in Havana Square drinking daiquiris and waiting for the bus to Koimar, you know, and people were dancing in the streets. And I thought, yeah, this is a good day to celebrate that dissertation choice again. <laughs> Um, well, as so, nice as Amherst is, uh, that's all you would go to for Emily Dickinson. So you, you did make the right choice for a number of reasons. Yeah, yeah, it, it was good. <laughs> I want to pick up on something you were uh, 
talking a little bit about a few minutes ago. Uh, compare Hemingway's popularity today with what it was when you first got involved in Hemingway's studies. Hmm, I think it's pretty much still the same. Um, it, it, he's He continues to be one of the most read American authors and um, his, his reputation is a little different. You know, people struggle struggle with it in terms of, I don't know. People are so concerned about race and gender, um, diversity, all of those issues. Um, and you, you might think sometimes Hemingway is portrayed as a kind of, I don't know, iconic sexist, which is really a reputation he gets from Hollywood. But then if you open his books, you discover that his books are about all of those things and struggles with those things. Many of his works that were published posthumously are about um, gender issues and sexual experimentation um, with, with different gender identities. Um, his books, his books about relationships and women are less about, you know, sexism than they are about sexual politics. He has very strong women characters like, you know, Pilar, who's the leader of a guerrilla band in the Spanish Civil War. Um, Catherine Barkley, who's a nurse in World War I, who many people feel is kind of the, the real hero of that book. Um, and he was married multiple times, but to very interesting women, um, writers, and one war correspondent who was a better war correspondent than he was. <laughs> And um, so he liked he liked talented, uh, challenging women, and he wrote about interesting relationships. And there probably isn't a political subject in this world that you can think about that you will not find somewhere in his works. I think people forget that not only was he a war correspondent, but he also um, was a foreign correspondent in Europe for a number of years after World War One, and he wrote a lot, not only about conflicts there, but about the peace process and about the political fragmentation of Europe. Um, in World War II, he was asked by the White House to take a look at the situation between China and Japan. He actually warned them that it was a really, really, really bad idea to have the fleet mast in Pearl Harbor. <laughs> having seen it from the air flying into Hawaii in 1940, but nobody listened to him. <laughs> um, you know, he just was a very astute person. He was a real citizen of the world. And so anybody who actually opens a book um, will, I think, immediately, you know, be engrossed by it. So I haven't noticed any falling off of interest. Um, I have noticed people being interested for different reasons, depending on how old they are, um, what, where they're coming from. I guess I guess I would add to that just to you know say how diverse he is is that he is probably one of the few writers in the world that both Fidel Castro and John McCain could have named as their favorite writer. Hmm. <laughs> so if you think that you don't like Hemingway because of his politics read it again. I think you'll find some you know universal universal things in there. Talk to us about how you got involved with Ken Burns. Well, um, 
Okay, once again, uh, phenomenally lucky. I mean, I feel so grateful to have been given an opportunity like this um, at the end of my career, like shortly after I retired. But um, I was approached with a, you know, a number of Hemingway colleagues to serve on an advisory committee for his um, documentary on Hemingway, which came out last April. Um, and it was a, a, just a phenomenal experience and not like one I've ever had before. <laughs> Do tell. Do tell. Um, I don't know how to describe this. Okay, well, because of editing the Hemingway Review, I have been asked to consult on quite a few Hemingway films in my time, both documentaries and um, one Hollywood film that I prefer not to remember. And they're really, those experiences were really, really different than working with Ken Burns. Um, so how do I explain this? Normally when you consult on a film, as, as a subject expert, they send you a copy of the script and you read the script and you make notes and you send them back a little report and you tell them um, if you see any errors, um, any corrections they should make, any materials that you're aware of that they might not know about that they might like to look at, um, things like that. Um, and then that's the last you ever hear about it. <laughs> you don't get to talk to anybody except maybe the director or producer in an email, usually only one of those people. And um, they might call you sometime to ask if they have another question they want to know the answer to. And I don't know, some of my favorite questions, I think I got a call from the Hollywood director asking if I would talk to the makeup artist about Hemingway's scars. So I was fun working with her and showing her pictures of his scars. And another time on a, a little a PBS documentary, but a short one, I got a call from a director who was in Paris and wanted to know what kind of uh, pencils Hemingway wrote with. <laughs> so there's a there's a Jeopardy topic for you, French pencils of the 1920s. <laughs> um, but with Ken Burns, you get the script and you read the script and, and the, the script has footnotes uh, not something I've ever seen before. And you do your thing. And then um, if you're lucky, you are called to New York and you are put into uh, one of those rooms they call a shark tank <laughs> with the glass walls. And in the room with you are two other major Hemingway scholars, Ken Burns, his co-director, Lynn Novick, his producer, Sarah Botstein, um, screenwriter who is Jeffrey Ward, who has won all kinds of Emmys and um, Pulitzer Prize for history writing and was editor of American Heritage for many years. So he's used to, um, you know, being assertive with scholars. Um, the fellow who works for the Hemingway estate and knows everything from that angle a generalist scholar in American literature who's there in case all the Hemingway scholars are groupies um, to you know, pull them up short. And this entire crew of these very talented, energetic young people who are the research assistants who go into the archives looking for uh, pictures and film clips and, and all of those things. And you spend three days in this room um, talking about the script together. 
and arguing about it and challenging each other. And it's just a very, very exciting collaborative process. And um, Ken is mostly quiet, but sometimes pushes people or argues with them. Um, Jeff is mostly quiet. I think he's a saint. Uh, I can't imagine having people in a room spend three days tearing apart something I wrote, <laughs> but he he's tough and can take it. And um, he challenges your assumptions and it, it just is just really, really cool. And the way the organization works, um, like I say, mostly it's just, if you're the consultant, you talk to the director and no one else, or you talk to the producer and no one else. Um, on a Ken Burns film, everybody talks to everybody. Everybody's contributions are, you know, valued. And so um, just great stuff happens. And, and it really is a collaborative process. So you never can point to one thing that you contributed because it will be building on something someone else contributed and then someone else will come in and build more on that. And, and so it's just, I don't know, it's like a great team effort and very exciting. Um, and then after that, this was fun too. Um, once we had a rough cut, we got called to Ken's uh, studio, which is in, it's on the New Hampshire, Vermont border. And it's this gorgeous old barn that has like an auditorium in it for film viewing with rows of tables, like you would see in a lecture hall where you were taking notes. And there will be even more Hemingway scholars in there with more different subject specialties and um, all of the people who are doing other parts of the film, like sound and editing. And, and then you will, you will, and you will get the script of the rough cut and you will spend three days in there um, watching the film and talking about the film and, and doing more and more. Um, and then we kind of got cut off from what would have been our second meeting working with, with the film um, for, because of the pandemic, but that was really exciting. I, I probably yeah. should stop babbling there, but. <laughs> well, just, just to be clear, you weren't simply a consultant, you were on camera. They, they, nope. were, they were filming you talking about, about Hemingway. Uh, I'm curious, I guess mainly because of what I'm doing right now with you, uh, I'm curious how many takes did they do? When, oh, you were, just, when you were on camera, was there was it one take or do they do it several times? Oh or no, what? it's it's one take. Um, well, first let me say they a Ken Burns film. Um, I think they did interviews with uh, over two hundred people, um, which may seem kind of astonishing. Was astonishing to me, but they did. Um, and, and not all of them made it into the, the finished product. Not all of them made it into the finished pro product and very little of uh, what one said makes made it in. Um, I Not everyone is interviewed by Ken. Um, Lynn Novick does some of the interviewing as well. But I w got interviewed by Ken and uh, it was a three hour interview, um, which is pretty standard for a film. Um, I, I did do an eight hour one once, which was like, oh my God, but, um, but not for Ken. And, um, there are no redos. You just talk. So you better get it right. Um, the first time. Out of those, out of those three hours, I'm going to guess having, having seen, seen it myself, I'm going to guess 
You were on for 20 minutes in total? Maybe. Um, I had just a few little clips in the first two episodes and then a much longer one at the end because he was interested in what I had to say about World War II and, and uh, um, Hemingway's suicide. So, yeah. So, you know, I was flattered that, that I managed to appear more than once or for any length of time. And uh, we well, did a great job. Well, thank, thank you. Um, I had, I had fun doing it. And again, big difference in other than other films, because if somebody does makeup for you and I hate makeup, I don't wear makeup. Um, and I, I feel like a clown usually. And I, I told the makeup person this and, and she said, Oh, she said, you sound just like Meryl Streep. I was like, okay. I was like, I guess I can trust this woman to put on my makeup if she works with Meryl Streep. And indeed I could. Um, and normally with a television interview, you know, you're set up and the camera is behind the director. So you're talking to the director. That's why you look like you're talking animatedly at a camera. You're not, you're talking to the director. But see, on a Ken Burns film, the cameraman will measure the distance from the floor to Ken's eye. <laughs> you don't see that too often. Or the sound man, people were really, the, the crew was talking about the sound man and how, um, how lucky they were to get him. And he only did it because he likes Ken Burns films. Um, and this guy is looking at a readout of your voice that's so sensitive that at one point in the middle, he, he stopped Ken and said, she needs a drink of water. And I said, I do, I do. And he's like, yes, you do. Your voice is changing. Huh. You know, I mean, it just, everything was just so um, the best that it could be, you know, it, it just was, um, it was very cool. And, and Ken was a good interviewer, you know, he, he's good at putting people at their ease and drawing them out. And he asks you tough questions when you're really tired so that, you won't like be too guarded in your answer. Um, the one thing he did that no one's ever done that scared the life out of me was I was talking and I hoped I was being interesting. I thought I was talking about good stuff and he closed his eyes. He just closed his eyes and leaned back in his chair and I'm like, oh my God, I'm putting Ken Burns to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not a good thing at all. And um, then afterwards, I realized because I realized the times when his eyes were closed were the, a lot of the things that made it into the film. And so what he's doing, he's a very visual person. And so he will close his eyes and listen to you talk. And I think he's doing like, the visual images for that in his head. Like he's thinking about how he would illustrate what you are saying. And so he closes his eyes when you're talking, but it, it's very disturbing <laughs> if you're not expecting it. <laughs> it also causes you to try to be better. <laughs> you know? um, so yeah, that was the experience. What an experience, I mean, that, that's just fascinating. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'll be watching this show over and over again, if only to hear you talk about working with Ken Burns. <laughs> yeah, it was but, fun. But let's move on from Ken Burns and get to 
Hemingway on Nantucket. When did this happen? Why did it happen? Tell us All right. Well, Hemingway visited Nantucket as a young boy in September uh, 1910. Um, he was he was 11 years old, about to start sixth grade, and he came with his mother. Um, so you need to understand about Hemingway that he was one of six children. He was the second child and that he lived in Oak Park, Illinois, had never seen the ocean before. And his mother, who was a very um, busy person, she was a professional musician, uh, as well as the mother of a growing family of children, she hadn't finished having all of them yet, decided that she would like each year that a child turned 11 to take that child to Nantucket with her for a month. Um, she had come to Nantucket during summers as a child, um, which would have been in the 1880s. And she really, really loved the island and wanted to experience that. But she also wanted to have each of her children have the experience of spending time, fun time, super quality time alone with mom for a bit. So Ernest turn came in um, September 1910. Um, so it was important for a lot of reasons. And I, I think one thing to do might be to think a little bit about what Nantucket was like in 1910. Um, it, it, it was really beginning to make a name for itself as a place that tourists and summer people would enjoy um, the historic district. You know, you can imagine there were even more historic houses than there are now today. Cars were not allowed on the island um, at that point. Um, and although Nantucket was no longer a whaling port, whaling wasn't entirely over. When it, one of the things that I enjoyed just reading, um, I was so excited now that the that the Nantucket Athenaeum has digitized its historic newspapers. That was like a pipe dream when I was on Nantucket and to have it come true and be able to read those newspapers, you know, at home or at three in the morning and, and search them is great. But one of the things that was in the shipping news while Ernest Hemingway was on the island um, was a notice that the Charles W. Morgan um, was being towed off Cuddy Hunk. And I'm sure that all Nantucketers know that the Charles W. Morgan is the world's oldest sur surviving wooden whale ship, and she's at Mystic Seaport. But in 1910, she was still a working vessel. And the, the shipping news um, mentioned um, when, when Hemingway was there that she was returning back to New Bedford from a successful voyage um, to Durban, South Africa. And she had on board 1,100 barrels of sperm oil and 120 barrels of whale oil and 6,000 uh, pounds of bone after a cruise off the coast of Africa and in the Indian Ocean. So whaling's not that far away. Uh, Morgan's going to be whaling for another 10 years. She, she retires in 1921. So little Hemingway's walking around a port where there are older people who remember whaling or have been whaling or whose parents went whaling and told them about it. And um, one of the things he does is go to the Historical Association Museum, which had opened in 1905. And there are pictures of it. It was on Fair Street and it's just crammed with paintings of, of ships and paintings of whale hunts and 
um, ship models where you can really study what's happening um, with these vessels. And of course, I think the thing that we all love most at the whaling museum, or at least I do, and that you can imagine a, a 11 year old Hemingway seeing a little boy who already loved fishing but had never been to the ocean before is that 15 foot jaw of the sperm whale, which was in there that, that had been taken by, by Captain, Captain Cash um, in, in 1865. So he got a very, very strong impression of whaling and what whaling was like. Um, he, he didn't just go to the museum um, he, he spent an entire day in there, an entire day. That, that's a long time to spend in a small whaling museum stuffed full of stuff, but talking to people. And um, so he's 11 years old. Um, one of the things that's going to happen to him as he grows up is that Moby Dick becomes one of his important books. And in, in, if, if you've read The Old Man and the Sea, I think you can see Melville's influence there. He wrote Old Man and the Sea uh, during the 100th anniversary year of Moby Dick. And he said he wanted to beat Melville. That was his goal, was to try to beat Melville. Um, and Old Man becomes the last book he would publish in his lifetime. And it, it's, it's the book that um, really brought him the Nobel Prize because of the furor over it. Um, and so there you have that connection, which is, is going to grow stronger in other ways. But I'll just throw out to you all, um, there's a letter at the Kennedy Library that's not been published yet um, that Hemingway wrote to a fan in the year 1961. And he actually wrote to her from his hospital room where he's being hospitalized for depression and mental illness. And that's that's the year, it's the last year of his life he's gonna commit suicide in July. But he takes the time to write to Mrs. Jensen. And Mrs. Jensen had written to say to him that, you know, I see traces of, of Moby Dick in Old Man in the Sea. Am I wrong? And he actually wrote back to her and he didn't write to fans that often and said, no, you're not wrong. And he said that he had read Moby Dick for the first time. He would read it many times, but for the first time when he was in high school, that it had not been assigned and that he was specially equipped as a child to appreciate Moby Dick from this trip that he made to Nantucket. And I just think it's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful tribute to that trip that 50 years later at the very end of his life, um, he's remembering that trip to Nantucket and the excitement that he felt in learning about whaling and about men who hunt big, big animals from small, small boats, as Santiago does when he goes out alone for a 1,500-pound marlin and when he harpoons a huge mako shark. You can think of a shark that's about 800 pounds. Hemingway held a run, real record for that. And you got to say that that suggests a little bit of influence there. Um, there were other, other aspects of that trip. Um, Hemingway, as a child, his father was an amateur naturalist and really wanted all of his kids, his 
to learn about natural history. His father was also a doctor, but he was so serious about it, Dr. Hemingway, that he um, ran an organization for children called the Agassiz Association in Oak Park. And he took the kids out on field trips to study flora and fauna and to collect specimens and to learn to observe them and describe them and even give little papers at scientific meetings about them when they were in elementary school. And he had them create their own natural history museum for their specimens. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds a lot like the Mariah Mitchell Association, doesn't it? it does. um, an organization to teach kids about natural history and about environmental science and get them interested in the sciences. And um, indeed, um, the Mariah Mitchell Association uh, was created in 1902. And along with the Agassiz, Agassiz Association, this was kind of a movement. So one of the things that Hemingway is doing on Nantucket is he's been sent by his, he's actually, he's actually, he's 11 years old. He's the assistant curator of the Agassiz Association's Natural History Museum, which is at his school in Oak Park. And he's been charged with collecting specimens for that museum because here he is having a trip to the sea. So he spends a lot of time doing that. He, he collects shells, um, he collects horseshoe crab casts, he collects all different kinds of seaweed, which must have been fun to bring back. Um, and he's having a great time doing this. And then um, he goes down on the docks he talks to the old fishermen that he meets down there. And <clears throat> one of the fishermen offers to sell him an albatross foot for $2. And he actually, his mother's not sure that he should buy that. That was a and lot of money in those days. It was a lot of money in those days. And, and um, so Ernest, she tells Ernest he has to write to daddy. And daddy says, well, you know, you, it needs to have some information about where it came from and when it was collected and who collected it to be a good specimen and don't get faked because that's a lot of money, <laughs> basically. Um, so that's kind of cool because it tells you that he's down there talking to somebody who's been whaling um, and been, been to the South Atlantic and been into the Pacific to see these great seabirds, um, which Ernest probably also knew about from reading Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner um, as a kid and, and later in school. But he doesn't buy the albatross foot. Dad's not thrilled about it. Mom's not thrilled about it. No albatross foot for little Ernest. But he goes back on another day and he meets another old fisherman on the dock. And he thinks, his mother thought actually this fisherman might be a little drunk, <laughs> slurring his words a bit. And he thinks the fisherman's name is Judas, but it probably actually was Judah. And Edward Stackpole has identified this person to me um, long ago as probably a fisherman named Judah Nickerson. And Judah has something better for little Ernest Hemingway to take back with him for his souvenir of Nantucket, take to the Natural History Museum. And it is the bill of a really, really, really big swordfish. Oh, wow. So how cool is that? Yeah. And when you get to the end of the old man in the sea, 
which which again, remember now he's he's still thinking about his trip to Nantucket in the in the last year of his life. What happens after Santiago catches that big fish and um, the sharks destroy all but the skeleton and he hauls it back to his village? Um, the young boy comes to meet him. You know, Santiago has this young boy who isn't isn't his own child, but he he treats like a son or a grandson. And what does he say to Manoline? He says, would you like the sword? And the boy says, yes, yes, I would. And the old man gives the bill to the young boy. And that's part of the conclusion of that book, the passing of this tradition from one generation to the next. And yet that's exactly what happened to Ernest as a boy on Nantucket, is that he was given this bill by Judah Nickerson. And I did go into the Nantucket newspapers. And again, let me say again, how thrilled I am about them being digitized and searchable. And I found that um, I think it was in 1886 or 1887, Judah made the newspapers for having caught not just a swordfish, but a noble swordfish. <laughs> and so I can't help but wonder, you know, if, if Judah kept the bill of a big swordfish into his old age like that, it might have been the noble, the noble swordfish. And maybe he told little Ernest a bit about that story. But these are the kinds of things that were happening to him on Nantucket. Um, and he had a great time. Um, I had some just I thought people might like to hear from some of the letters from this trip. We've got a couple uh, minutes, sure. Yeah, they're just little short ones. This is this is a note from his mother to her husband, Clarence. Um, they have just arrived on um, September 2nd. Dear Clarence, Ernest is just now dressing after his first plunge in the ocean. It is so cold, I am not going in. I wish you could hear Ernest's wild yells of joy. He wants to bring home every shell on the island. We, we all know that. Um, here he is writing to his father. Dear dad, I went fishing by myself yesterday morning off the jetty. I caught 13 sea trout. They are very gamey fish and fight like black bass. The four biggest ones supplied our table of six people. The meat tastes better than speckled trout, we think. Um, another one to his sister, Marceline, his older sister. I went sailing up to Great Point, which is 14 miles. It was fine and rough, so we went out in the open ocean and shipped water grandly. I have bought a large swordfish sword for the agassi of an old salt by the name of Judas. Mama and I went to the suffrage meeting through which I slept soundly, did not get to bed until 11 o'clock. So those were the kinds of things that he was doing that he enjoyed. Um, he and his mother also walked to Surfside. Um, visited a life-saving station there and talked to Captain Clisby and, and listened to his stories. Um, it was a good time. And his mother had a wonderful time too. I, I don't know, you know, if we have time to talk about her, um, maybe a little. Oh, it had to be a little. We've got about one or two minutes. Okay, well, this, this really is her most Nantuckety part of her trip is that she did go to a women's suffrage um, meeting that was held in the great hall of the Athenaeum. And Grace was a, a wonderful professional singer, but she would become later in life a painter and a writer. And 
a man named Dr. Benjamin Sharp spoke there, who was one of the founders of the Ameri of the Mariah Mitchell Association. Um, he he was a he was a scientist, but he spoke about many different uh, Nantucket women. He spoke about Kasia Coffin and um, Elizabeth Starbuck, and he spoke about um, Mariah Mitchell, of course. So what does Grace do late, late in life? She keeps coming back to Nantucket. She begins writing a book about Nantucket women called Tales of Old Nantucket and planning to illustrate it with her own paintings. So she was inspired as well. And maybe I just close by saying there's really interesting coincidence between Ernest and Dr. Sharp. So Dr. Sharp's a medical doctor who really cares about natural history, studies at Woods Hole. He became a zoologist on one of Robert Perry's expeditions uh, to Greenland when, when Perry was looking for the North Pole. And Dr. Sharp wrote a monogram, monograph on um, the fishes of Nantucket with a man named Henry Fowler, um, who was who the ichthyologist at the Academy of Natural Sciences. So who ends up on Ernest Hemingway's boat Pilar in 1936 off Cuba, invited for a research cruise to study the habits of, of marlin and tuna and, and the big fish off Cuba? Henry Fowler. <laughs> I was just so blown away to see that. So I don't know whether little Ernest ever got to talk to Benjamin Sharp, but again, um, just this whole being steeped in this atmosphere of maritime adventure and maritime literature and great big animals and natural science um, was, you know, just an exciting trip for him. Susan, these are fascinating stories. <laughs> I, I think I probably speak for everyone, or almost everyone watching, that we had no idea about all this uh, Hemingway on Nantucket. And the fact that so much of what he did here over 100 years ago, we know about in great detail, which I thank you for giving us. I mean, that's remarkable as well, the fact that we, we know so much about what he did. Well, he saved all of his letters there. That family saved everything. His mother kept scrapbooks. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's a great tribute to many, many libraries that we have as much as we do. And, and that includes the Nantucket Athenaeum. Well, I'm certainly glad so many people saved so many things. I mean, it's, uh, it's wonderful to have all this stuff today. Susan Beagle, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, this could have gone on for hours and hours. Maybe we can do it again sometime, but this has been wonderful. I appreciate your taking the time to do it. Well, thank you, Charlie. It's been fun. I wish I could be on Nantucket for real. <laughs> well, that'll happen someday, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. For Profiles on Nantucket Community Television, Channel 18, I'm Charlie Walters. Thank you for tuning in and please tune in again.